when you buy a customer from Google, you own that customer. When you acquire a customer from Amazon, you're actually renting that customer. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook, presented by Details Interactive. Here, you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 71, and today's guest is Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. Jason's a longtime retail industry thought leader, and in his current role at Publicis Group, he's the opportunity to meet with and counsel a broad array of retail executives. He got to start with Computer City and Blockbuster, spent time with Sapient Razorfish, and he's been a part of NRF for many years. You can also listen to his podcast, The Jason and Scott Show, which is always informative. Before we get started, a quick thank you, as always, to Max Brandstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready, break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. Jason is the Chief Commerce Strategy Officer of Publicis and the co-host of a very popular podcast, The Jason and Scott Show, which recently celebrated their 300th episode. He describes himself as a fourth-generation retailer who's been lucky enough to have a front-row seat to the digital disruption of commerce. Jason, welcome to the show. Mark, it's so good to see you again. Thanks for having me. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for making the time. Uh, I know you've got lots going on with uh, all your trips to NRF, where your trip to NR NRF and uh, your own uh, podcast. L let's touch on that one first. You know, I've done uh, roughly 70 shows, 300. That's quite a feat. So congratulations. Yeah, I think we're both winning. I, I read somewhere that the infant mortality on podcast is like eight episodes. So you and I are both killing it. You know, when I started, I, I wasn't, you know, it was really a hobby. You know, I, I've told this story before. My wife said to me, geez, are you going to make any money doing that? And I obviously did not do this to make money, which is a good thing because I haven't made a penny from it. But, you know, I've enjoyed meeting a lot of people that I might not ordinarily have met other than through the podcast. And, and that's been a lot of fun. In your case, what was the driver uh, for starting the show? Yeah, well, it sounds uh, similar. Um uh, there's a, a great organization that's now part of uh, uh, the NRF called shop.org. Uh, and so, you know, many of us uh, uh, in the early days of e-commerce were all members of this trade organization to try to figure out how the heck to even do e-commerce. Um, and uh, myself and my, my co-host, Scott Wingo, were lucky enough to both be elected as board members uh, of shop.org. And so a couple times a year, we'd all meet, we'd have this meeting. But the funnest part was after the meeting, we'd all go to a bar and talk shop. Um, and, you know, one time at the bar, Scott looked at me and goes, man, you know, we should really record this conversation. There's like eight other people that would like to hear it. And he jokes that I ran out and got thousands of dollars of audio equipment the next day, which is not not true, but like there's some grain of truth there. And so we literally started the podcast Total Lark, uh, just thinking it'd be interesting to a few people that missed a meeting. Um, and yeah, you know, over five years later, it's it's accidentally become, become popular and and yeah, there's a lot of things I would have done different if I knew it was going to be a real thing. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, that's, uh, you know, that's great. And, uh, you know, I've listened to a lot of the shows and, uh, you know, anybody that's listening to this, you should, uh, absolutely wherever you listen to your podcast, uh, it's the Jason and Scott show and, and, and you should take a, take a listen. Frequent uh, listeners of this show know that I like to talk about, you know, the guest's first story. And it's so interesting how often, uh, where they are today, uh, you can kind of foreshadow of their early life or where they were going to end up. And you referred to yourself as this fourth generation retailer. So your early life retail, what was that about? Uh, yeah, well, I grew up in a retail family, um, you know, uh, for several generations doing different kinds of retail. And so I, I, you know, worked in shops from the time I was 14 years old. I used to uh, demonstrate the Commodore 64 uh, for uh, uh, for parents that were looking to buy a first computer for their family back in the day and uh um you know that i was lucky enough when i got my first professional job outside of school um i got to work for a great entrepreneur that started a company called that became blockbuster entertainment and while we were there this thing called the internet happened and uh you know uh as, as was always the case back in the day like you assign these random projects to the intern and so you know everyone at the at Blockbuster was like, I don't know, Jason's the only guy with a computer at home. Let's ask him to figure out like if we should have a website. And so that, you know, kind of became the Blockbuster.com and, you know, later added e-commerce actually a year before Amazon. And and uh, uh, once we sold Blockbuster, a lot of other retailers were interested in leveraging the experience from all the mistakes I made at Blockbuster. <laughs> So interesting. And, you know, if we, you know, take a, a quick run at your early career, you, you referenced Blockbuster, you know, you spent some time at Computer City and then at Blockbuster. Um, but what's interesting is that, you know, most of your work has been on the provider side of the world. And yet, you know, you're you're offering all this consultation and, and good consultation on uh, being a retailer. Talk about that, this, the shift from the brand side to the provider side. Um, well, so first of all, I, I like to say, and especially we do a lot of hiring today, my, my favorite candidates are folks that have broad experience across kind of the three big roles in the industry. And so I always talk about the three being roles being, being a retailer, selling other people's stuff to consumers, being a brand, like making stuff that you're trying to get consumers to want that you often sell through wholesale, um, and being some kind of service provider, um, you know, that could be a, a product or an agency or, or a service or whatever. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm not sure it's equally balanced in my case, but but I, I do have all three. I, I, st I actually started at Commodore Business Machines, um, you know, subsequent to those those retail shops where we were making brands. We were selling through a bunch of um, independent computer stores and even big department stores. You know, I have the, the retail experience at, at uh, Blockbuster. And then back in the early days, you know, e-commerce and even websites weren't a huge priority. And so, you know, they got assigned to kind of a, a low value employee or they got outsourced like which would be absurd today and so you know when i left blockbuster and i started a a, a solutions provider we got hired to launch uh, e-commerce at target and we got hired to launch e-commerce at, at best buy and in both of those experiences i really felt like a target and best buy employee and both of those ended up being very long-term gigs um, where, you know, I, I certainly acted, uh, like, like I was a member of the team and I, I hope they would, they would say that it felt like that to them too. But so I would consider all of those kind of my retail experience. And then, uh, you know, more recently I've, uh, I'm on at a big agency and, and on the, the provider side for sure. But the thing that I do think is wonderful about that is I get faced with a different problem every day. And so, you know, when you move from 
car, automobile e-commerce to grocery e-commerce to apparel e-commerce, and they're all affected by the pandemic in wildly different ways and have very different problems. It's fun for me because I, I get to learn a, a big diversity of problems. And sometimes one of the things we solved last year in apparel, we get to use this year in grocery, for example. So Yeah, I, I want to come back to that. I, I will about you know how problems have changed over time. When, you know, one of the things that's been interesting for me, you know, I've spent most of my career on the brand side. Now I've done a bit of consulting, not for big consulting shops, but for you know what I'll call in-between real job work. And I've really enjoyed that because much to your comment, it's given me the opportunity to see a lot of different people, a lot of different brands, different verticals over a relatively short period of time. And you know, one of the things that you find is that there's so much consistency of the problems that you know, people need to solve regardless of the vertical, you know, that they're selling in. But let's, let's talk about, um, so there was a business MTI, you were there, um, you know, for quite a long time, VP of marketing and interactive merchandising solutions um, business. So what was that about? Yeah. So that, uh, going back to that kind of um, uh, Stockholm syndrome, uh, uh, when I was at Blockbuster, we launched a chain of music stores. One of the features that was super popular in the music stores, shockingly, turns out to be listening to music. And it's non-trivial to let every customer in a music store listen to whatever music they want. So we had we had uh, developed some technology and some customer experiences around listening stations and, um, and, and sampling and what we would call interactive merchandising. Um, and so when we sold Blockbuster and I moved back to the West Coast, uh, uh, I, I, I started a solutions provider that, per, that was crafting those digital in-store experiences um, for other retailers, most most notably Target and Best Buy. Um, and at, at one point we had the opportunity to buy a company that was a competitor in that space that actually had a factory that made the stuff uh, that was called MTI. Uh, today they would tell you that their name is, stands for Merchandising Technologies Inc., but it actually stood for Mo and Ted's idea, which was the, <laughs> the, the two founders. And so, you know, through that, we like literally I got assigned projects like design the Concept5 um, uh, retail environment for Best Buy, which was a, a floor plan that was used for Best Buy uh, at many years or design flagship stores for T-Mobile. We designed lots of uh, retail environments that had a, a digital component. Maybe you needed to learn about a product to buy it or try something in the store. Uh, a lot of what we did is called taking stuff out of product jail, which is, you know, taking stuff out of the, the locked cases and letting customers actually uh, use it and learn about it in the shop, which is ironic because with all the organized crime today, a lot of a lot of uh, particularly like drugstores are putting all the products back in product jail. Yeah, you know, you were talking about you know listening to music in stores, and I remember um, the one that uh, I recall most vividly is going into a Barnes and Noble when they started to sell music and putting on the headphones and thinking, "Geez, somebody else had that on their head. Um, now I'm going to put it on mine." <laughs> all, all of those issues around hygiene and durability and reliability. Like I spent years and a fortune trying to design the world's most hardened headphones, and it turns out the way better solution is to use the world's uh, cheapest headphones and just replace them a lot. <laughs> you know, after uh, MTI, six years at uh, Sapient Razorfish, also a consultancy, and and going back to the the earlier conversation about problems, uh, as as time has evolved, what what's different in the kinds of problems or the specific problems that clients come to you? I'm sure there's lots of threads that are very similar. How do I make more money? How do I reduce my costs and be more efficient? But are there some things that stand out to you that are just so different between 
back when you were at Razorfish to what you're doing now from a problem solving perspective? Yeah, or e even back from like the very beginning of my career, the like, there's a lot of nuances we could certainly talk about, but super big picture. The, the thing that's remarkably changed for me is retail followed a pretty consistent playbook for a long time, right? And my dad's retail stores could follow the playbook of his grandfather and like, frankly, get pretty good results. Like it was all about optimizing that playbook and running it a little better than everyone else, but there weren't necessarily dramatically different ideas from generation to generation. And what's funny today is the, the, those playbooks that my ancestors followed would utterly fail today. They wouldn't work at all. And, and if you go, well, why is that? The biggest reason um, is the influence of digital on purchase decisions, right? And so I don't necessarily mean, oh, people are buying stuff online versus in store, but the fact that they're reading ratings and reviews before they go to the store, the fact that they're discovering stuff on TikTok instead of in the store aisle, the fact that they're using Google Maps to figure out what the store hours are and who has it nearby me, all of these these um, different consumer behaviors that have been disrupted by digital. And most of all, the dramatic acceleration of customer expectations around uh, speed and breadth of experience. Like I would argue we're still in the first or second inning of this digital disruption of commerce. And so the vast majority of problems I work with, with brands and retailers is some flavor of where they are in their disruption, how mature that disruption is and, and you know what, what specific problems they're trying to solve as a result of digital disruption. You know, it's interesting as you're talking about offline, uh, we'll call it digital research before I go into a store. Um, you know, one of the things that's always been challenging, you know, in performance marketing, you spend a dollar, you hope to generate three or $4 of revenue off of it directly on your site. But there is revenue that is stimulated in store, in physical retail for each dollar that we spend in digital marketing. Have you spent any time trying to help you know, um, omni-channel, multi-channel retailers rationalize that dollar of spend to the the ROAS that they get, the return on the ad spend that they get on on digital, but that there's also more revenue stimulated into the stores. Oh, absolutely! Uh, like I, I think more than ever, most relatively sophisticated retailers are super cognizant of that, and like increasingly, we realize that like most of the metrics we've been using for most of my career, and you know, going back to the old playbooks don't work anymore, probably were never right, right? Like they, you know, um, they, they probably had some fallacies built into them. And then that, you know, acceleration of, of digital disruption, like is really kind of um, exposing those, those fallacies. And so depending on how long you've been disrupted by digital and how, how much you've invested in it, you're probably somewhere along the evolution of evolving from these transaction-based metrics, like how profitable was this ad or how profitable was this sale? to sort of customer-based metrics. How valuable is that customer? How valuable is this cohort of customers that I acquired in 2019? Dramatic, once you get that kind of view, it dramatically changes uh, a lot of the decisions you make about how to you know, invest your, your corporate treasure in different marketing initiatives. One of the things I find so interesting is, you know, when I get involved in in talking to earlier stage businesses, you know, not necessarily startup, but a little bit further along, you know, their metrics, the things that they're thinking about, CAC, LTV to CAC, so customer acquisition cost and long-term, you know, value relationship. And then you look at some of the many of the the larger retailers that have been around for so long and how they are not using those metrics to help drive their business thought 
the uh, CAC in particular tends to be uh, sort of a, a brand marketing metric when it shows up versus the, um, you know, sort of traditional retail uh, metrics. Part of the reason for that is when you open a brick and mortar store, whether you did it intentionally or not, like you, you sort of automatically are investing in one of the best attention um, uh, attracting uh, tools we have in marketing, which is that physical presence. Uh, people drive by that store, they see the signs for that store, people shop that store and spread uh, versus word of mouth. And so, you know, traditionally you opened a store in a market um, and of, you know, of course, good marketers pour dollars towards other initiatives to amplify it, but just the presence of being there drove a lot of interest. And so retailers tended to focus on how to, how much measuring how much profit they got out of that store and not what a marketing investment that store was. But, you know, if you're a brand or you're a newer um, uh, direct-to-consumer brand, maybe that doesn't uh, have those stores and you're, you're writing a check to Facebook to acquire customers, uh, you tend to be a lot more overtly focused on on metrics like CAC. Um, although I, I will tell you, like all these acronyms make me chuckle because they almost never mean what you think they would mean. And, uh, you know, there's this uh, professor at Emory that I, I love and follow, Dan McCarthy, who's uh, one of the kind of fathers of LTV with Peter Fader. And, uh, you know, every time I bring a CAC to him, I'm like, this doesn't seem right. This isn't really what CAC is, right? And he's like, no, that's not what CAC is. I, I would love to have a whole show um, around CAC and how it's calculated. Um, we, we're actually uh, having that conversation with with some uh, businesses I'm involved with now. So that, that would be an interesting uh, topic. Just to, to set the stage, you know, we're, we're recording this January 25th, 2023. Uh, you know, the, the economy, you know, continues to, I don't want, maybe flounder is not the necessarily the right word, but, you know, you, you had posted uh, something last week, you know, about November and, and December retail sales, excluding restaurants, auto and gas were up 5.2% uh, against last holiday. The historical average was 4.5%. Four percent, and you know, you said that uh, you know your sense was that a good chunk of that, you know, five point two percent was inflation. You want to talk about that? Yeah, it, it for sure was. Um, and so, you know, there's all these different ways we slice holiday. Like I would argue, holiday is is November through January, um, but different folks count it differently. Um, but uh, last week, the U.S. Department of Commerce data for December came out, so that lets us look at November plus December. And I was a little annoyed early in the holiday because there there was all of this, what I considered false narratives. Like there were all these talking heads coming out and going like, oh man, it's shaping up to be a great holiday. Like NRF, which I love, National Retail Federation, like they issued a big press release, a record number of people went shopping this year, right? And so, you know, you, you read that uncritically and you're like, oh, it's a big holiday season. No, that means one more pe person uh, went shopping this year than last year, which, so, spoiler alert, there's more people in the United States this year than there are last year. So that's not necessarily like a super favorable trend. And a bunch of the digital guys, Adobe and Salesforce, that only have a view of e-commerce were reporting very favorable e-commerce sales versus last holiday. Um, well, for a variety of reasons, e-commerce sales last holiday sucked. So they were comping against a relatively soft number and doing pretty well. But now that we have the real data, uh, uh, for holiday, it's, it wasn't horrible. Like an, an average holiday growth is is about 5%. And we finished holiday at about 5%. So it, it wasn't horrible, but the most retailers were hoping for 
seven or eight percent. And, you know, last year they got 13 percent. So they're comping against this, you know, uh, huge, huge number last year. Um, and so, you know, unfortunately, like most retailers fell short of that because a lot of those sales were uh, inflation. That means the retailers didn't make a lot of profit on those sales. Um, and so from a profit standpoint, like I think holiday was really problematic and you were going to see a bunch of retailers report their earnings in the next uh, week and a half. And, you know, I, I think you're going to hear a lot of people that were like, we we hit or barely missed our revenue goals, but we fell way short on our profit goals um, and we're reducing our guidance for the rest of the year because there's so much uncertainty. And so I think, you know, it's kind of the unfortunately, this holiday season is probably the beginning of a a, a leaner year for for retail. And we certainly have seen that from all the layoffs that have occurred, you know, over the last month on the tech sector. And now I think we're starting to see it, you know, more in the conglomerates and more in retailers, you know, starting to, uh, you know, to shake out. I, I'm imagining what you're saying with, with the profitability being light that that gives rise to, you know, cost cutting. What's your your sense? And, and this may be a little bit out of left field. Is there some irresponsibility that went on in hiring? you know, in tech, you know, over the last year or two, um, that was just a natural that we, where we are now with all these shakeout was just, we should have expected it. Yeah. So I mixed feelings, to be honest, it's a great question, Mark. I've been a little critical. Like there are a bunch of tech companies that, that are really adjacent to e-commerce. So, uh, Peloton, um, and Shopify are two good examples. And they both came out and they're like, man, e-commerce sales took off during the pandemic and we thought they were gonna stay high forever. And then they regressed to the mean. And so gosh darn it, we gotta lay off 4,000 people, right? I hate that narrative from the CEOs because uh, of this inconvenient truth. That's not true. Um, like e-commerce hasn't regressed to the mean. E-commerce is way higher than it was in 2019. It's 100% higher, right? Um, so like we we've sold we're selling five hundred billion dollars a year more stuff online um, than we did at the beginning of the pandemic and so it's it's simply not true that like oh we thought that it was e-commerce was going to accelerate and it really didn't didn't and that's why we have to lay people off it is true that the last three years have been the greatest year uh, years in the history of retail right like the this three year period we grew thirty percent. On average, over three years, we grow 14%. Like it, it, we've never grown this much before. And, and so every retailer and every tech company that supports retailer did an enormous amount of hiring. So when you see these layoffs now, it's a minor course correction. Like the big story is Amazon added 700,000 people since the beginning of the pandemic. And the little story is that was 18,000 people too much. So they're laying off 18,000 people, right? Like when you put it in that context, it's still a failure of leadership. And I, you know, I, I think, you know, every time you impact a single family and their income, it's a big deal. And so I, I don't want to let any CEO off the hook for over exuberant hiring and then having to, to cut those people because it's awful. But, you know, they added 700,000 people, they laid off 18,000 people. You know, unfortunately, it, it's hard to be perfectly efficient. The devil's in the details. You probably have heard that phrase time and time again in your professional life. Projects get started with great intentions, but you no longer have the time to pay attention to the little things that could make the difference between success and failure. At Details Interactive, you can discuss your business with a seasoned direct-to-consumer marketing executive who's helped launch and grow web businesses and integrate multi-channel marketing initiatives. Learn more at detailsinteractive.com.
Let's talk about NRF. You uh, mentioned it before, National Retail Federation, big show uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I know you spent a bunch of time there, uh, three or four, two or three, whatever you like. Uh, takeaways from uh, your few days there? Yeah. So, A, uh, thrilled to say the show is back. It's the you know biggest show in retail. It's a 100-year-old show. Um, and, you know, shows didn't do very well during the pandemic they tried to have the show last year and it was you know frankly awful and so i was a little worried a lot of exhibitors that didn't spent a bunch of money last year would uh be slow to come back based on last year's experience but uh this year it felt super vibrant there were lots of interesting new solution providers there were lots of retailers there with one caveat they probably brought fewer of their co-workers uh, uh than they they have in the past but overall attendance at the show um was above 2019 so um so, uh, or 2020 rather. Uh, so uh, that was encouraging just from a personal standpoint that it feels like the industry is robust and that the, the trade organization and the trade show are still big. We could talk about the takeaways from the keynotes, from the, the, the sales floor, um, but the biggest takeaway for me is the vibe I get from talking to all of my friends, clients and retailers at the show. And we kind of already touched on that, right? They're, like their vibe is, hey, the last three years have been amazing. Uh, but we, we're seeing a lot of uncertainty this year. We're seeing like meaningful changes in consumer behavior um, as consumers are starting to get nervous about the economy. And so, you know, uh, we just went through our budgeting process, our annual planning process, and our budgets are lean. We're cutting way back and we have a significant shift in focus from customer acquisition to profitability, right? Um, and, and so, you know, I think a lot of the, the other trends I saw on the sales floor were related to that. Like there was less kind of, you know, customer experience front end G whiz trends. And certainly there were less of what I consider the kind of longer term, not relevant in the short term trends that everyone likes to buzz about, like the metaverse or NFTs or something. But, uh, uh, and there was a lot more talk about, hey, here's how we can use the latest AI to do better demand forecasting and match supply to demand better. Like a lot of stuff that could help profitability for 2023. Yeah, so AI was, you know, one of the things I was going to ask you about, you know, every year or every two years, there seemed to be these, you know, the buzz around, you know, certain things. AI is all a buzz now. How are you thinking about this when, you know, your clients at Publicis are coming to you? Uh, there's so many different ways that AI could, you know, inform uh, business decisions. Yeah, so I have a mixed relationship with AI. Um, I'll confess I always worry when someone comes to me and they say, I want help executing a specific tactic, right? Like, uh, you know, a few years ago, I had a CEO from a very big retailer come to me and he's like, hey, Jason, I want to take Bitcoin. And I'm like, oh, cool. Just out of curiosity, is that because you think there's a bunch of people that want your products and services and they only have Bitcoin to pay? And so we need to accept Bitcoin to capture those sales? Or do you need an interesting press release? Because Bitcoin isn't that cool anymore we could probably do something else to better generate a press release, right? Um, and in that same way, when people come and say, hey, I wanna do an AI initiative this year, I'm like, that is doomed to fail. Like nobody should do anything because it's AI. Like AI is a tool in the bag. Um, and so I do have a pet peeve around that. But that being said, there are a bunch of pretty exciting use cases where um, AI can help solve real world problems for retailers, right? And so um, again, because this year is gonna be, I think very focused on profitability and kind of back of house efficiencies and supply chain. 
those feel like the most practical to me is like demand forecasting has been revolutionized by using AI pricing, dynamic pricing. Uh, the, uh, you know, Macy's talked about um, how, uh, you know, we used to have one size fits all promotion strategy across the whole country. Um, and now, you know, the computers tell us how to promote in every market individually based on on the demand signals in that market. And we're able to be much more efficient figuring out how much inventory to put in Amazon FBA versus your own 3PL versus your stores and how much to put in the East Coast versus West Coast Fulfillment Center. Um, like there's huge efficiencies where AI can be helpful there. So there are lots of supply chain stuff that I'm excited about. And then I will say, I'm also really excited about uh, AI for content generation, right? So uh, in the early days of e-commerce, you know, we would sell a thousand SKUs. And I, I think you ran a couple e-commerce sites that, you know, probably had low thousands of SKUs at, at one point. To, uh, today, my biggest clients, Walmart, they have 800 million SKUs and they're woefully behind uh, uh, Amazon that has 800 million. Uh, I'm sorry, Walmart has 80 million SKUs. Amazon has 800 million SKUs. And when you're creating that many SKUs, writing good product descriptions, writing good uh, marketing bullets uh, becomes really problematic. If you're TJ Maxx and your inventory is super dynamic and you only have one of something, paying someone to write a good description for it is really problematic. But the AI has become remarkable at looking at the picture of the bloody coat and writing a really good uh, description. And it's, it's kind of game changing the the attributes that we're we're being able to pull out of computer vision and things like that now um and so i do think using ai in the sort of product onboarding and and a digital merchandising is going to increasingly be common you know i was thinking that uh, she's with chat gpt i didn't even need to interview you i could just have put in you know typed in what will jason answer to this question and maybe i would have gotten you know saved you a lot of time you you joke uh yeah you would have probably gotten a much more coherent answer but um uh i have an article a column in forbes and uh my my last article was about something we've already talked about it was about kind of uh the demise of e-commerce is greatly exaggerated um as an experiment i had chat gbt write that article like i didn't have it do the research i i said write a forbes article in the voice of jason goldberg um, with this title that makes these points, right? So I gave it all the content, but I let it write the language. In the past, I would have spent several hours writing a first draft um, and it knocked out a very serviceable first draft. I had to do some light editing to it, but it saved me two or three hours in my content creation process. And I'll probably never write a first draft from scratch again because of that. Well, there you go. You know, part of this show is giving uh, our listeners three key takeaways to take back to either their personal life or their business. There's one for you on, on things to do with uh, chat GPT. Uh, cool stuff. As part of your show, one of the things that uh, you do around this time of the year is your annual predictions. Do you have uh, a few predictions for us for this coming year? Oh, God. Uh, yeah. Uh, caveat, like our predictions are generally not very successful. Uh, <laughs> and I, I usually get an ulcer about this time of the year because, uh, you know, I have a co-host who's much smarter than me. And historically, his predictions have been much better. Um, and so uh, I want to say, like, last year we tied, which was a moral victory for me, because a big part of our prediction shows reviewing the previous year's forecast and making fun of each other. Um, and so this year, in a rare upset, I, I beat Scott on last year's prediction. So so I just, you don't want to put that out there for everyone. So take any predictions I, I have with a grain of salt. Um, 
But uh, the kind of predictions that we had, like I, I talked a little bit about the market, uh, and I, I do think because of the, these economic headwinds, there there were a lot of vulnerable retailers that I, you know, I, I do think we're going to see an, an, an increase in bankruptcies and and particularly brands that are kind of in the middle, like companies that you know cater to really value oriented consumers seem to be going pretty well. Customers that cater to luxury are doing okay, but like you know, a lot of these kind of mid market specialty retailers it's going to be a slog. And so, you know, certainly we've already seen uh, Party City uh, declare bankruptcy. We're, you know, likely to see Bed Bath & Beyond declare bankruptcy. I think, you know, that is unfortunately going to be one of the trends this year. Buy Now, Pay Later has been a, a huge um, a tactic the last couple of years in, in uh, um, uh, e-commerce. Uh, and I, I actually think there are too many providers out there that are undifferentiated. And so I, I, I kind of think uh, uh, as, as there's a little more economic challenge this year that we're going to see some consolidation of those buy now pay later. So we'll see fewer of those. Everybody likes to talk about Shopify and Shopify versus Amazon, which I, I don't think is actually a, the, a real battle, but, uh, Shopify is kind of getting into some new interesting businesses. And one of the businesses they're not in yet that I expect we'll see them get into this year is the ad business. Um, and so helping, helping all those Shopify stores monetize their their e-commerce traffic with a you know some kind of consolidated retail media network so the uh a few of those things uh I, i've learned the best predictions are to say that something won't happen so so uh i said live streaming commerce probably isn't going to be economically meaningful this year because that's something everyone likes to buzz about but actually doesn't doesn't work very well here uh, we mentioned your role at uh, Publicis. Um, so in in your role today how, how do you interact with uh clients uh very well Oh, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mark, are, are you familiar with the Peter principle where you keep getting promoted until you achieve the level of your incompetence? A absolutely. Yeah. So when you write the Peter principle book, my face will be on the cover. <laughs> uh, for those that aren't familiar with Pubasis, Pubasis is one of three big holding companies that own a bunch of agencies, right? So they own, we own, uh, agencies that buy media for for ads. So we like buy time on television channels for Super Bowl ads. Uh, we buy uh, billions of dollars of Facebook and Google ads. We own agencies that make those ads. So we'll probably make seven Super Bowl ads this year. We make a lot of, you know, ads that run on on Google and Facebook. And then we have agencies that do sort of uh, digital services for retailers, stand up e-commerce sites, uh, launch email campaigns, all, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So I used to work for one of those agencies, which you mentioned, Razorfish, um, and uh, you know got to work with the Razorfish clients, and you know got staffed on on retail initiatives that Razorfish did. Today, I oversee strategy, uh, commerce strategy for the group. Um, so what that means is I'm kind of a pelican. I, I get to go visit clients for all those agencies when they're working on a retail project or a commerce project. I, I, you know, tend to be involved at the beginning and end of projects. So, you know, help kick things off, help kind of frame things, help kind of, you know, set a, a hypothesis for a high level strategy. And then, you know, often the CEO is selling a strategy to a board at the end of the day. So often I'll, I'll get invited to that, that board meeting to help that uh, support that CEO in that sort of evangelism or those kinds of things. So, so I get uh, less deep interactions with each client, um, but I get, a much broader range of clients because I get to work across the clients of 230 agencies. Um, and, you know, a lot of what I do is just internal education for all those different agencies, making them as good at commerce as they possibly can be. 
Well, based upon your background and and knowing a little bit about you, it sounds like you're in a perfect uh, role. It, it wouldn't be a show uh, talking to you without just spending a couple of minutes around Amazon. I, I know you've been a- uh, I've heard big, of them. Yeah, I know you've been a big Amazon guy over the years. You talk about it a lot on your show. Where do we stand? So I'm a retailer. Still, there are some retailers that don't want to play with Amazon. I, I think there are fewer and fewer of those, you know, uh, now. But you know, so now I'm a retailer. I play in Amazon. What are the the few things that I need to be watchful about? Yeah, well, this year is a particularly interesting year. Um, so, uh, you know, I assume we're mostly talking about brands versus wholesalers, right? Like, yes. you know, if you're if you're buying stuff from Procter and Gamble um, and marking it up and selling it through your stores, you're you're probably not going to be successful. Also, listing it on Amazon and mark and having them mark it up uh, to sell. But uh, for brands, uh, there are two ways that things get sold on Amazon, which I know we all know, but a lot of uh, people that aren't as close don't. Like, you can be a first party seller, so you th then. Amazon acts like a retailer, you sell it to them wholesale, they mark it up and sell it retail, or you can be a third party seller, which means you sell your own stuff to customers and Amazon takes a commission. Um, and what's been really interesting is the first party business at Amazon is shrinking as the, the third party business gets bigger and more profitable for Amazon. And, and Amazon has, has very clearly said 2023 is going to be a year where we focus a lot more on profitability than innovation initiatives and growth initiatives. Um, and uh, the 3P business model is way more profitable for Amazon than the first P business model. And so what that means is if you're a new brand, you invent a new product, you probably shouldn't rely on Amazon to issue a bunch of big POs and sell that stuff for you. What you probably have to do is develop the skill set and tools um, to sell your own stuff on Amazon and think of Amazon as a customer acquisition marketing channel, no different than Google or Facebook or, um, or out of home or, or anything else. Um, and the, the one you know huge difference between Amazon and a lot of those other channels, when you buy a customer from Google, you own that customer. When you acquire a customer from Amazon, you're actually renting that customer, right? So they actually like have a lot of uh, structural things to keep you from really knowing who bought your product and what they did to make that purchase decision and that whole path to purchase. And so, you know, a lot of the best practitioners in 3P are better than norm at um, renting to own, at figuring out how to use Amazon to get exposure for their products, to acquire new customers, but they do a pretty good job of transitioning a set of those customers to be direct to consumer customers over time and have a direct relationship with a brand. So we, we could do about an eight hour seminar on all the things that you might you might do to accomplish that, but like at a high level philosophically, transitioning from whole uh, 1p to 3p and transitioning from like you know 3p being your primary channel to 3p being a a, a secondary channel that that you use to acquire a customer once like i think is the the right way to be thinking about it yeah we you're right i think we could uh, there's probably 10 other questions that i'd want to tee up with you <laughs> just about uh, you know 3p and the different flavors of you know of fba and then being able to be you know vendor uh, vendor shipping and you know I, I think your point about you know spending the money to acquire the customer and and renting it is so true i've seen so many businesses where you know the customers buy through amazon and then the rebuy rate of those you know people is so much worse than uh, you know what it is if they in, engage with your your site directly. So 
great stuff. Really uh, informative. Thank you. We're, we're down to the last two minutes of our show. You're going to get back to your uh, your regular day. Um, I have a two-minute drill here. Seven questions, one word answer. You ready? Oh, God. All right. Easy. Well, what's so God that you don't know the questions or that it's one it's word pressure. answer? Pressure. Yeah. I <laughs> okay. probably should have checked the notes. Okay. What, number one, brand that you admire or that inspires you? Nike. Favorite app on your phone? Twitter. Sad. Last website, <laughs> last website other than Amazon that you shopped from? Sephora. Something that you're not good at, but wish that you were? Being uh, more concise. <laughs> Charitable organization that you're passionate about? Yeah, uh, Pubis has just launched an awesome charity that I'm, I'm fully behind called Working With Cancer. And so I, I'm not trying to be trite by leaning into a company initiative, but uh, turns out half of us are going to get cancer and more than half of the people that get cancer are literally afraid to tell their employer because they're worried they're going to lose their job. And so it's a cool initiative around destigmatizing cancer in the workplace. Well done. If you had one superpower, what would it be? Uh, persuasion. Um, I spent a lot of time telling people what to do and then spending the next eight years trying to convince them that my advice was good. And I'd, I'd <laughs> love to short circuit those those three years. Other than family, what's your most prized possession? Oh, it's embarrassing because I think it's awful, but the uh, I feel like the possession that I most uh, would have to immediately replace if I lost is the darn phone. Ah, okay. Uh, where can people reach out to you on social media if they'd like to connect? Sadly, anywhere. Like if you if you just type retail geek into any platform of your choice, uh, you're likely going to find me. But LinkedIn is a great great place to start, and it's you know you can do search for retail geek or or. Uh, LinkedIn slash uh, in slash Jason Goldberg. Okay, great. Well, Jason, uh, really enjoyed uh, today. Uh, good advice for uh, for the listeners, for me as well. And uh, really appreciate your time. Uh, wish you a good year. And uh, I hope that your predictions uh, are right and that you can, you know, uh, have uh, honors over Scott again. They just need to be more right than Scott's, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like when the bear is, uh, you know, but you, you have two people running, right? You just have to be yeah. faster than your your friend. Exactly. Uh, Mark, uh, congrats on all the success with the show, and thanks so much for having me. Thanks very much. Good to talk to you. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Jason Goldberg for coming on the Marketing Playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, each experience that we have throughout our careers are building blocks for the future. With so many people having been recently laid off, if you're listening, understand that what you take away from your most recent employer will be used in your next job and the one after that and so on. It's tough to lose a job, but focus on what you learned and how that can lead to your next role. Number two, the retail playbook is an ever-evolving one. Consumer behaviors are constantly changing and your strategies and tactics must change along with them. Dollars spent in digital are not only driving digital sales, but they're driving traffic into stores and allowing customers to educate themselves before they ever visit the store. Number three, there are many use cases where AI, artificial intelligence, can be used to help retailers, but it's only one tool in the toolkit. Jason speaks about demand forecasting as one of those areas, especially since the focus near term will move more towards profitability and less on growth. Determine the areas of your business that you need to improve and then figure out whether there's an AI solution that fits your needs. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, 
Make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Details Interact and learn more at detailsinteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details. Thank <laughs> you.